A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide. Yehudi Gabra with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode, right before Tisha B'Av, has been sponsored by the OU. Make your Tisha B'Av more meaningful with the OU. Renowned speakers, special programming, and a live kumzitz straight from the Kaisel. Speakers include Rabbi Moshe Hauer, Rabbi Dr. Tzvi Hirsch Weinreb, Rabbi Stephen Weil, Rabbi Azaria Berzon. Great speakers, meaningful and inspirational content geared towards Tisha B'Av. I plan on listening to it myself and participating, and I highly recommend it for others as well. I think the listeners of Jewish History Soundbites would greatly enjoy and be inspired by this Tisha B'Av program of the OU, and you'll fill your Tisha B'Av with meaning. So for more information and to pre-register, you go to the OU's website. There's a specific link uh, to it, which I, of course, will post both in the uh, show notes of this episode as well as on the uh, social media platforms of Jewish History Soundbites. So you'll go enjoy, not enjoy, but uh, uh, have a meaningful Tisha B'Av with the OU and the content that they are providing. Um, this episode is going to examine the story of mirrors or students of the Mir Yeshiva in pre-war Europe who did not escape uh, and, and uh, fell victim to the uh, Nazis in the Holocaust. Why is that appropriate? First of all, because I'm a mirror and I'm obsessed with anything about the Mir Yeshiva. And also because we have this image of um, of that in the mirror, everyone escaped. Everyone got to Shanghai. They're the only yeshiva that escaped. And over the years, I've come across um, some who didn't. So I want to bring that story to you today. Um, I'll start with a story from the days that I was a tour guide in the Yad Vashem Museum uh, quite some time ago. And... I would bring groups into the museum, and the first exhibit that you really hit in the museum is this um, exhibit from the Kluge concentration camp in Estonia. The Nazis had deported Jews primarily from the Vilna ghetto, um, and towards the end of the war, to further north to this concentration camp in Kluge and in Estonia. And it was liberated by the Red Army towards the end of the war, and the Nazis had attempted to wipe out the evidence of their crimes, and they wanted to burn all the bodies of the Jewish victims they had killed in Kluge, 
and they hadn't finished burning, and the Red Army, when they liberated the camp, they found and took pictures of the evidence, and not only that, but in the pockets and on the clothing of the victims who had not yet been burned, they found all kinds of personal items, which all of a sudden tells the story of who these people were um, as individuals. And one of the pictures that I, and this is all authentic, right? This is all the original artifacts that were found in the pockets of Jews in Kluge in this first exhibit of Yad One of them is a picture, this specific picture that I would bring every group to as we walked into Yad Vashem. And it was a very strange picture, and in a way I've never quite gotten to the bottom of it. I still have some pieces still missing from the puzzle, but it is what it is. It was found in the pocket of one of the victims of at Kluga, and on this picture is four young yeshiva students. Three of them have been identified as Ruven Oritzker, Meir Matskevich, and Yitzchak Srebnik, all from the town of Soli. And it seems that they were in the Mir Yeshiva until at least 1938, possibly even afterwards, it's unclear if afterwards as well. And it seems that these three students of the Mir Yeshiva were killed, all three of them were killed in the Ponar forest outside of Vilna in April of 1943, which is one of the later liquidations of the Vilna ghetto. And the picture has an inscription on the back, which they had written and gifted the picture with this inscription to a Rebbe of theirs, and it's unclear if this was a Rebbe in the Mir Yeshiva itself, or possibly it was a uh, Rebbe from their previous Yeshiva before they went to the Mir, or maybe after, I'm not really sure. Um, and the Rebbe is only identified as um, Reish Nun Sadi, pr- presumably Reb Nassim Svi, which makes it even more confusing, because Nassim Svi is obviously a name associated with the Mir, but this obviously has no connection whatsoever. This is a Nassim Svi who we don't know who he is, and this Rebbe was killed at Kluga um, because the picture was in his pocket. And this inscription is this thanking this Rebbe for what they did for him and taught them Torah and Yeres Shemayim and, and was so close with them and everything and so on. And this Rebbe had apparently kept this picture in his pocket through the war, and it was found on him following his being murdered in Kluga in 1945, just a few days before the Red Army liberated the camp. Um, And what I found so fascinating about this whole story was not really the Rebbe so much, who I don't know much about him, but these three students in this picture were in the Mir Yeshiva shortly before the war and were all killed in Ponar, were all killed in Vilna. So that means they didn't make it out. They, They didn't make it to Shanghai, they didn't get the visas, I don't know if they were in the yeshiva still when the war broke out. I don't know if they left before or if they still were in there. It doesn't make a difference. The point is, is that all of a sudden we have the pictures and names of three students of the Mir Yeshiva who were killed, who were not, uh, who didn't escape. So this introduces us to the story. And the story is that, of course, the Mir Yeshiva, we know, or at least that's what we're told, is the only yeshiva that the entire yeshiva escaped as an entity, as in a whole. Everyone else, for the most part, got killed. Every other yeshiva, not just yeshiva, you know, six million Jews got killed. That means most of everybody got killed. But here the Mir Yeshiva uh, was able to escape as a whole, including the faculty and their families. And um, 
and they made it first to Japan with the Sugihara visas, and then eventually to Shanghai where they survived the war. That is the gist of the story. Now, at one point I also went through the math, and I found a discrepancy in numbers. What's the discrepancy that I found? Uh, well, it turns out that that according to every list I've seen, there were well over 400 students registered in the Mir Yeshiva before the war. 425, 440, 450, somewhere over 400, well over 400 students that were registered in the Mir Yeshiva before the war. Approximately 100 plus, 110, 120, something like that, were what they referred to as B'nai Chutz La'aretz, meaning they came from other countries outside of Poland. Um, they came from uh, Germany, um, the biggest contingent, over 50 of them. Um, and then they were from England, from the United States. There were over 20 from the United States and from various other countries where there were smaller numbers. Uh, many of those B'nai Chutz La'aretz, German, Dutch, uh, etc. They went with the Mir Yeshiva uh, to Shanghai, uh, so we can't discount them entirely. But Americans and English and others, they were warned by their embassies as the war was breaking out that they should leave. So we can we can take them off the list. Um, so they're not with the Mir when the war breaks out. But there should be nearly 400 in Shanghai. I don't know, 350, 380. We should see that number of Mir Yeshiva students in Shanghai. In fact, we only have 300 approximately Mir Yeshiva students in Shanghai. So we're missing nearly 100 of them, but it gets better. We're missing a lot more, actually. Actually, And I'll bring it in in a personal way. My wife's grandfather of blessed memory, Reb Simchaned Borni, was a student of Reb Aaron Cutler uh, pre-war, not in Kletsk itself. He only joined when the yeshiva had moved to Salok during the war, the beginning of the war in Lithuania. Before that, he was in Bialystok, in the Navardic yeshiva there. It doesn't matter. The point is that he ended up in Shanghai on his own merits. He did not get a Sugihara visa. He ended up in a whole story, whatever it is. He got to Shanghai on his own, on his own path. And when he's in Shanghai, he's there all alone. Um, he didn't come with anyone. So he joined a Kletsk yeshiva contingent who joined the Mir in Shanghai. In other words, he joined the Mir Yeshiva in Shanghai as a convenience, since that was the main Yeshiva there. That was the only Litvish Yeshiva in, in town. He was not originally in the Mir in Mir. He was not registered there. He only joined them in Shanghai. So I looked into his story a little bit, and it turns out that this phenomenon, that there was nearly a hundred such students in Mir in Shanghai. There was a whole group from Kletsk, Baranovich, Kamenitz, Grudna, and several other yeshivas who had come to, Shang, to, to Shanghai on their own, either with a Sugihara visa or without a Sugihara visa. But the point is, they only joined the Mir in Shanghai. So that accounts for nearly a third of the Shanghai yeshiva, of the Mir yeshiva demographic. And that means that we have to drop the original Mir yeshiva student number to only about 200. I hope this math isn't too confusing um, for anyone. But the point is, is that there's only about 200 Mir Yeshiva students in Shanghai who are in the Mir Yeshiva in Poland pre-war. That would be about 50% of their pre-war en- enrollment. Uh-oh. As soon as I figured out this math, it was a big uh-oh for me. Because the Mir Yeshiva was over 400 students before the war. 
and there's only about 200 Mir Yeshiva students in Shanghai, plus another 100 who came from other Yeshivas and joined the Mir in Shanghai. And what happened to everyone else? So it seems that we're forced to revise the everyone in Mir escaped or everyone in Mir survived narrative, or also the entire yeshiva stayed together during the war narrative. Uh, neither of those uh, apparently are 100% true. It's at least 50% true, which is fine. It makes it better than every other story. It makes it better than everyone else. So it's fine. We can still keep the core narrative, but we have another 50% to deal with. By the way, that makes perfect sense. There are too many variables involved here. Some students likely went home with the war's outbreak. War breaks out. A lot of people just simply went home. They went to their shtetl, to their town, to their city, to Warsaw, to wherever they live. They went back home to their parents. That's very often, it's very common if war breaks out. It happens to be the war broke out, um, and, 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 and then there was this chaotic few weeks. A lot could happen during those few weeks, and people might have gone home. Some were probably still with the yeshiva even later, but they were concerned regarding the visas. Others were probably unable to obtain visas altogether, either because they were Soviet citizens, or they had some other documentation missing, they didn't have passports. Um, All kinds of scenarios could happen. The yeshiva also was under Soviet occupation for quite some time. They had been scattered to four different little shtetls in northern Lithuania. And they, they, I mean, it was hard to keep the yeshiva together in 1940, early 41. Um, so it's likely that there was an attrition rate, that some people left the yeshiva. Another common scenario is students, mere yeshiva students, who got out on their own means to other countries. Sometimes they got to, to America, to Palestine. They got to other countries with their own means. They had relatives, they had affidavits, they had whatever it is, they were able to get out. So people who were able to get out on their own, got out on their own. Um, especially, by the way, an entire contingent of Mirishiva students got visas to the United States when they arrived in Japan and went straight to the United States without going to Shanghai. In other words, they got the Sugihara visas, they made it to Kobe, Japan with the Mirishiva together, but they did not proceed to Shanghai because they went straight to the United States, including some famous names um, uh, like the the, the, the entire uh, family of the, or almost the entire family of the Mashgiach, Rabbi Rucham Levavitz. He obviously was not there. He had passed away in 1936, but his wife and his children and their uh, families all made it straight to the United States. They didn't go to Shanghai. Other big students of the Mir also, Rabbi Shaya Shapiro, Rebellion Chazan, and there's quite a few others. I'm not going through the whole list now. Um, so quite a few made it to the United States right away. They didn't go to Shanghai. But after all said and done, there were quite a few who were in Europe during the Nazi occupation and did get murdered in the Holocaust. It's a fascinating thing. There's a list at the beginning of the second volume of Das Chachmo Musr, that's Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, Mir Mashkiach's Musr Shmuzin that he delivered to the entire yeshiva. So it's published by his son, um, Rabbi Simcha Levavitz, and there's this list that he publishes in the introduction. Now, as is well known, Rabbi Rucham did not write down his own Shmuzin. Notes were taken by various students, and Rabbi Rucham's son, Rabbi Simcha Levavitz, used these notes to compile and publish his father's Shmuzin. He basically dedicated his life to this gull, gull and all of the Torah that we have today from Rabbi Rucham is a result of Rabbi Simcha Zissel's prodigious efforts. So in the introduction to volume 2 of Das Chachum Musr, he lists uh, six 
Mir Yeshiva Talmidim, whose notes he utilized in the preparation of this volume. Five out of the six on that list, Reb Simcha Zissel appends the acronym Hey Yudalad, Hashem Yin Kaim Damai. In other words, they were killed in the Holocaust. The only one of the six that wasn't was Reb Leib Malin, of course. Reb Leib Malin, who well known, right? He, he's the one who led them to Shanghai, and he used and Reb Simcha Zissel utilized his notes as well. So this brings us to another point. It's you know these five were killed. Now why were they not included? It's very likely that these five were alumni, or at least some of them meaning they were no longer in the yeshiva when the war broke out, or perhaps they were still in the yeshiva when the war broke out, but they didn't have the opportunity to be part of the yeshiva's great escape to, to Japan and later to Shanghai um, uh, for whatever reason. By the way, if it's alumni, it also makes it that it's a big story, because there's thousands, uh, presumably, of Mir alumni across Poland and Lithuania who studied in the Mir over the previous decades, who had moved on, gotten married, and gotten jobs, who were not in the Mir on the day they escaped, so they all got killed too. Um, but we're going to focus on registered Talmidim or t- family members, stuff like that. Family members, by the way, is another story. Uh, family members of the administration. Reblazi Yudel Finkel himself, the Rosh Hashiva himself, had a, a, a son, Rebavram Meir Finkel, um, and he had married Cyril Glickson, who was a granddaughter of Reb Chaim Brisker, a, a daughter of Reb Chaim Brisker's uh, daughter and son-in-law, Reb Tzvi Hirsch Glickson, who were um, who was a Rashiva in Warsaw, and Teres Chaim in Warsaw. And Rav Meir Finkel joined the faculty of the Yeshivas Teres Chaim in Warsaw. And he stays there during the war. He's in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he and his entire family are, during the deportations from the Warsaw Ghetto to Treblinka, are killed in the gas chambers uh, there. By the way, that death of his son, Rav Meir Finkel, had a big effect, uh, impact on Rav Yudel for the rest of his life. It, it changed some of his practices. He, was, he mourned him for quite some time. He wrote about him. Uh, a fascinating story. Um, so Reblazi Yudelfinkel uh, himself lost one of his children and his entire family. Um, so uh, also one of the sons of Rabbi Rucham Levavitz, uh, the Mashgiach, um, Rabbi Rucham's oldest son, Rabbi Yisrael Levavitz, was a rabbi in the Ramayla Yeshiva in Vilna. He had married the daughter of... Um, of Reb oh, Kasovsky, I forgot his first name. Just slipped my mind. Uh, Reb, uh, Reb uh, whatever it was, Kasovsky, Reb Chaimizer's brother-in-law, who was later a rabbi in Johannesburg. Either way, Reb Yisrael was married to his daughter, and and he was in Vilna during the war, and he obviously wasn't part of the Mir Yeshiva. And for many years, he was. It was thought that he was killed in Ponar uh, in during the time of the Vilna Ghetto, in the Ponar Forest, uh, where most of the Jews of Vilna were shot. I recently read a small pamphlet um, authored by a Kosovsky relative of Rabbi Yisrael Lovavitz, or his wife, his wife's relative, rather, and it described the whole story of Rabbi Yisrael Lovavitz and his wife and his children and their travails during the war. It turns out that Rabbi Yisrael Lovavitz was actually only killed towards the end of the war, probably in a concentration camp in Estonia, um, towards the end of the war. Fascinating story. It's a whole entire pamphlet devoted to the story of, of Rabbi Yisrael Lovavitz and his family. Very interesting. Either way, so you see um, uh, there's these uh, members of the Mir Yeshiva family who are killed, by the way, uh, the most prominent member of the Mir Yeshiva family who's killed with his entire family is Rabbi Ram Tzvi Kamai. Ram Tzvi Kamai was the elder brother-in-law of Rabbi Yisrael Finkel, the son of the previous Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir, Rabbi Yibaruch Kamai. 
And Rebbeim Tzvikamai was not only the um, Rosh Hashiva of the Mir, he was also the rabbi of the town. And in his capacity as the rabbi of the town of Mir, he decided to not go along with the yeshiva. He said a rabbi does not leave his community. He stayed with the town and he and his wife and his children, one daughter who lived in Israel, but the rest of the family were wiped out, along with the residents of the Mir during two aksias uh, over the course of the uh, war the Mir, from the Mir ghetto. There were some who escaped the Mir ghetto. It's a whole story also. It's for another time. Um, but he and his family and most of the residents of the town of Mir were killed as well by the Nazis. Um, so, but getting back to the core students of the Mir Yeshiva itself, the possible reasons that some may not have gotten visas, like I said, was because they returned home to their parents. Maybe they were Soviet citizens, so they were not eligible to get visas. Maybe they were scared, they were concerned that these visas were were uh, were not reliable. Uh, maybe they had alternative plans. I mentioned all these possibilities before. I want to focus on perhaps the most famous mirror who got killed by the Nazis, who did not escape to Shanghai, and that is Rabyaina Karpolov, known known to posterity as Rabyaina Minsker, because he grew up in Minsk. Um, and in fact, I, I I was very excited to see that uh, they're republishing the Yainas Elim, which is uh, the safer that they wrote about, um, about uh, from the Torah of Rabyaina Minsker. Um, I saw there's a whole charity campaign fundraising for it, and 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 I'm, I'm happy to to promote that as well. I remember when I did the uh, the episode recently when I was in Prague with Nachi Weinstein and Davi Safir, um, the, the live from Prague episode a few weeks ago. So we discussed how we can uh, you know engage the audiences to publish these out of print svarim and and important historical works and. And uh, these people and their Torah should not be forgotten. So I'm very happy to uh, to say that there that there's this whole campaign. I mean, I'll post the link uh, to that as well. That um, that um, they're re- republishing the Yainas Elam, not only the old Torah of Rabbeinu Minsker, who was killed by the Nazis. He was a Mir Yeshiva superstar. I'm going to speak about him in a second. And he did not get the visa to Shanghai. He was he remained there and was killed in Kovna. Uh, during the Holocaust. Um, so his Torah um, was published originally in this Yainus Elam um, Sefer after the war by his brother, Abzev Volensky, and has been republished since, and now they're going through a much more better printing, fixed up, with a bi- biography in the beginning, and adding a lot of new stuff that were never printed before, I think like you know 12 new Shtiklach Torah, or something like that, that was never previously published, and... Um, that's uh, very exciting. So that that I'll I'll post the information to that um, also in the show notes, so that anyone who wants to be involved in that, that would be very nice as well. So Rabbeinu Minsker was um, born in Minsk. Lo and behold, Rabbeinu Karpolov um, in 1909 he attended a yeshiva there, um, and in fact, when he was a young boy, he was exposed to the influx of refugees there during World War One, which was not only an upheaval of World War One, but some of those refugees were some very prominent yeshiva personages, including Reb Chaim Brisker. The Chavetz Chaim was there for a short time as well, and he uh, he saw these people as a young young child, five, six, seven years old. He got to see these people, and that inspired him also as well to continue his yeshiva studies. He eventually um, studied during the. 
Again, this is the Russian Revolution and the Civil War following the Russian Revolution. And this young boy is going to study in yeshiva. He left Minsk. He went to, uh, became a student of Rebbe Chanan Vasserman and Shmilovich, in, which is in Russia. He was in exile then in the aftermath of World War One, And then as the Soviets solidified their control and the communists... Uh, over the region, you know, became more communist, and the Soviet Union was already being established during the later stages of the Russian Civil War. The future for religion in that area seemed pretty bleak, and Erbruvin Grzovsky, uh, who himself was a Minsk native, and was friends with Rabyaina Karpolov's father. So Rubin Grzovsky convinces him to join the Knesset based Yitzchak Yeshiva of his father in law, Baruch Berlebevich, um, who was also, they had originally been in Slabatka, but they were in exile in Kremenchung during World War I, and they're on their way to leaving its long Russian exile and to settle back in Vilna, which ended up on the Polish side of the border, the Polish and Lithuanian War, which is another story, and it ended up in Poland. So um, Rabbeinu Minsker leaves his family for good at the relatively young age of 12 or 13, um, and never sees them again. They end, they end up staying in the Soviet Union, and he ends up in Poland in yeshiva, and he attends the yeshiva Knesset Beis Yitzchak in Vilna. After several years, the the uh, the yeshiva moved to Kamenitz, and it became the Kamenitz yeshiva, and Rabbeinu Karpula, Rabbeinu Minsker, transferred at that point to Mir. In about 1926, he's about 17 years old, um, and he becomes a big mirror for the rest of his life. And he became very close with the Mashkiach, Rabbi Rucham Lovavitz. He was known as one of the elite lions of the mirror, together with Rabbi Malin, his close friend, and several others. And in that capacity, he was one of the, among the first group of mirrors to travel to Brisk, to study under the Briskarov, Rabbi Zev Soloveitchik, which was a very, very important and prominent feature of the interwar years, especially the 1930s that in the mirror, some of the uh, lions of the mirror, some of the elite uh, students would go for a period of time, for two years, three years, to brisk, to learn by the brisk Rav, Rebitzik and Erblaz Yidl Finkel continued to support those students there because the brisk Rav did not have a formal yeshiva. And the Rebbein Minsker was one of the most prominent ones of that group. And he became a very close student of the Briskarov, one of the closest, in fact, I'd say. I think that's undisputed. And um, and things remain this way. He was known as one of the superstars of the Mir, and hence of the entire Lithuanian yeshiva world, a young and budding Torah scholar. He published some of his Torah in various different journals, and it was quite well known, you know, he had been a student of Rebbe Khan of Asterman, of Baruch Ber, of the Briskarov, of the Mir, of Rebbe and he's one of the lions of the Mir. He's also the, the, the elite students of the Mir, kind of like ran the yeshiva. They delivered the chaburs, the, the shiurim, the classes. It was very unique in that respect. The elder students did that. And he personally tutored many young protégés in the Mir, um, especially the ones who came from Chutzlar, it's came from outside of Poland, including Rabmatch Schwab, who came from Germany, from Frankfurt, or Shmuel Schechter, who came from Canada, Rabbi Yemen Seilberger, who also came from Germany, and several others who later on, these ones who survived, they revered him and they spoke about his greatness for the rest of their lives. His uh, his standing in the mirror and really beyond the mirror and was because of his greatness, a tremendous Torah scholars. Fame as a Talmud Chacham, as a, uh, a very, you know, very, 
renowned as for someone in his late 20s, early 30s, um, which he was at that time, he became quite, quite well known and prominent in the Torah circles. Now, that remains like that until the war breaks out. War breaks out, um, and uh, following Poland's surrender and the Nazi occupation, of course, the Red Army invades Eastern Poland on September 17th, 1939, and Mir being in Eastern Poland ends up under the Soviets, and like many of the yeshivas at the time, and this is quite well known, they escaped to Vilna because Stalin was planning on giving the Vilna district back to Lithuania, and Lithuania was still independent, it was a neutral country, it was not involved in the war, and this way they would get away from the Soviets. So they go to Vilna, the Mir Yeshiva is one of those that go to Vilna. Um, eventually, the Soviet Union swallows up the Baltic states in June 1940, and officially is incorporated into the Soviet Union in August 1940, so Lithuania becomes in the Soviet Union, and they find themselves under the, Soviet, under the Soviets again. Even before that, they suspected, it was seemed that Stalin had his eyes on the Baltic states, and this Vilna story seemed like it would not remain independent for long in Lithuania, and they would be swallowed up by the Soviet Union. And that's why people are starting to look for visas. And getting the visas is not the topic of this story, but we're going to speak about why Rubyaino Minsker did not get one of the miracle visas of Chiyuni Sugihara, um, and um, and there's all kinds of theories why. The whole Mir Yeshiva is going to get the visas. Now we know that it wasn't the whole Mir Yeshiva, but most of the Mir Yeshiva was getting these visas, so why isn't their main student, their famous prime student, the one who everyone looks up to, why isn't he getting a visa? So there's loads of theories. I've seen some things that sounded so bizarre and so strange, and some that sounded more rational, and of course we'll never know the real truth. So I heard I heard a version that I can't even remember where I saw these versions because one of the great yeshiva shahaks that people do in dormitories on Thursday night when they're schmoozing in the wee hours of the morning is talk about things like this. Rebellion Minsker, he's a great yeshiva shatapic, and he started talking, hacking, why didn't he get a visa? I heard this, I heard that, I heard one of the Altamiras said like this, and I heard one said like that, and of course there's 12 different versions of the story, so I'll tell you as many as I know. And again, I don't remember where I saw each and every one of them. One of, the, one of them said that he had some sort of shidduch offer, remember he's 30, 31, 32 even, 32 and he got killed, so I guess it's a year, year or two before this, um, so he, he was offered a, a, and he was looking into that, so he stayed for that, he didn't get a visa. Another version I heard that his, he, he, he uh, now that they're in the Soviet Union, so he was able to be in contact with his mother, who he hadn't been in touch with for so many years, and she didn't want him to do it. I don't know, that sounds a bit far-fetched as well. The wildest version I heard was that he was very skeptic about it, so he capped the price that he would do, do to purchase the passport or visa, whatever he needed, whatever documentation he needed at that early stage. And he said, only if it costs this amount of money, then I'll buy it. If it costs more than that, I'm not going to do it. That's like, I guess, like some sort of sign that it's not to be. And sure enough, it cost more than what he he had capped the price, and therefore he didn't buy it. Also does not sound too plausible. What sounds more plausible is that he thought it was very dangerous. It was a dangerous scheme. It was very risky. He, having grown up in Minsk, witnessing the revolution, witnessing the civil war after the revolution, he saw the communists up front. He saw how things worked. He saw the early Soviet Union. 
he saw their relationship with religion, and he was terrified. He he uh, he, he saw that he thought these Curacao visas were a trap. Um, they weren't real visas. They just said you don't need a visa to go get into Curacao. Um, he thought it was too flimsy. He was had a fear. Another version said he was just scared of doing anything illegal when we're talking about the Soviets because there could be repercussions when dealing with the Soviets. There'll be deportations to Siberia. And remember, in the world before the final solution, in the world before the Nazi invasion, the worst thing in the world is deportation to Siberia. Of course, in retrospect, with 2020 hindsight, we know that Siberia was the greatest place to be because that means you wouldn't be killed by the Nazis later on. But no one could know that at the time. The other version I heard, and this also is very plausible, this might be the, actually the most plausible uh, theory, which makes the most sense, is that he was a Soviet citizen. He escaped the Soviet, he was born in Minsk, he was, was there during the revolution, he was there during the Civil War, he was a Soviet citizen, he was not Polish, um, and he was not eligible. It's likely that he never obtained Polish citizenship, so he was not eligible. Anyone who was a Soviet citizen could not get these visas, it was only for foreigners, Poles were foreigners. Um, they were not Soviet citizens. Um, and and the Germans were foreigners. Um, anything like that. Dutch were foreigners. But Soviet citizens were not eligible to leave the Soviet Union. So any student of the Mir Yeshiva who is a Soviet citizen or recognized as such, he's from Minsk, so maybe they, perhaps the Soviet Union considered him a Soviet citizen, even if he didn't want to, um, and therefore he was not even eligible to get a visa, even if he wanted to. That makes the most sense, but again, we can never know for sure. In the background, and the important part of the story is, that I wish to emphasize, as I always do, is that the occupation at this point was Soviet occupation. The threat at this point was Soviet, was communist, was spiritual. The perceived danger was primarily spiritual. No one imagined in 1940 a Nazi invasion, right? There was a non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany. No one was thinking about Nazi invasion. No one was thinking about they were not in the jurisdiction of the Nazis. They were under the Soviets. And even if someone was somehow a prophet that they knew that the Nazis would invade, they definitely did not know that there was going to be a mass murder or a final solution by the Nazis when they would invade. You know why? Because the Nazis themselves didn't know that they were going to do that at this early stage in 1940. So, no one could imagine what was to come. The whole entire story that we're talking about is how to deal with the Soviets, how to escape the Soviets. Should we escape the Soviets? Perhaps it's safer not to escape the Soviets. All the decision-making and the back and forth on the visa topic must to be seen in this context about the Soviet Union. I saw, so he stays behind and he does not get the, the Sugihara visa. And before I continue with what happened to him, I want to share something that I saw, a really bizarre story cited, cited in a religious book, of course. Um, I'm not going to name it. And I'm sure that the story never happened. I'm 100% sure that it never happened. And this story has Rabbi Zalman Meltzer asking the Briskarov. When the Briskarov arrived as a refugee to the land of Israel in 1941, Rabbi Zalman Meltzer, of course, lived in the land of Israel. So Rabbi Zalman Meltzer asks the Briskarov when he arrives as a recent refugee, he says to him, Nu, who's left in Europe from the yeshiva world? To which the Briskarov answered, just one person is left, Rabbeinu Minsker. He's the only one left. He's going to turn out the lights when he leaves, and he's still there. And uh, eventually, Rabbeinu Minsker, of course, gets killed. So this ridiculous story is certainly not true. 
Even if we assume for a minute that for some bizarre reason, it wouldn't be of concern to either of Mrs. Zalman or the Riskarov, all the rank-and-file Jews, Jews from all other countries, even their rabbinical colleagues, even members of the yeshiva world of other countries, and the entire focus is for some reason exclusively on the Lithuanian Torah world. Even if we make that assumption for some reason, I don't know why we would, um, it definitely can't be. Why not? Among other reasons, because the Briskarov was a community rabbi. He was the rabbi of the town of Brisk. He was not a member uh, directly of the yeshiva world. He was not a Rosh yeshiva. And so he was ostensibly concerned for the residents of Brisk, or at least for his own family, his own wife, his Rebetzin, and several of his children, like three or four of his children, remained behind, and eventually all of them were killed. So the Briskarov was definitely concerned about them. To, so to assume that the whole uh, conversation would be only about who's, which members of the yeshiva Shiva world are still back in Europe that we need to be worried about. So I don't believe it. But even if somehow that was true, how do we explain that the only one left from the yeshiva world is Rabbeinu Minsker? How do we explain that the rabbis and students of the Tells, Yeshiva, Kelm, Slabatka, Baranovich, Grudna, Kamnitz, Lumja, Navardic, and even the Kletsk Yeshiva, which is formerly Rabbis Zalman's Yeshiva himself, or even the Teiras Chesed Yeshiva in Brisk, which the Briskarov wasn't directly affiliated with, but he knew very well, or the Teres Chaim Yeshiva in Warsaw, where his family members were in charge, and countless other rabbis and students, the Lithuanian Yeshivas, they don't rate as having remained in Europe in the context of this alleged conversation. Almost all of the ones that I just mentioned remained in Europe and were wiped out in the Holocaust. The rabbis and students, for the most part, were all killed, with rare exceptions. So this conversation obviously never took place, and one wonders why these publications would irresponsibly publish these silly stories, and for what purpose. Now that I'm done venting, we can get back to the story of Rabbeinu Minsker. So he remains in Lithuania during the war, and he's in Kovna, in, 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 uh, in Kovna Sabatka, uh, in, in, uh, which was independent Lithuania, then Soviet occupation, and then in June 22, 1941, the Nazis invade in Operation Barbarossa, and in the early stages of the Nazi invasion, Rabbeinu Minsker is killed. And the important part of the story here is that it's with Lithuanian, by Lithu, excuse me, by Lithuanians. Lithuanian collaboration uh, during the Holocaust in Lithuania is a huge story. One can even probably say that the majority of Lithuanian Jews were killed by Lithuanian collaborators, by their own neighbors. Um, and, he's, and, and this is true in the Kovna ghetto at the 7th Fort, at the ninth Fort, and it's true at the early stages when Rabbeinu Minsker is killed. Rephraim Ashri, the famous uh, Kovna rabbi who survived the Kovna ghetto and was a chronicler, he recorded the events of the Kovna ghetto after the war, he records that Rabbeinu Minsker was martyred in the initial Slobodka pogrom, in which many Jews from Kovna and Slobodka were killed in the early aftermath of the Nazi invasion. By who? By Lithuanians! by their own neighbors, by their own initiative. In other words, it wasn't the Nazi initiative or the Nazi command or the SS command of the Lithuanians. This is the Lithuanians on their own initiative that carried out this program. This is a very important story of Jewish history, of the Holocaust, which is often un- unknown. It's often overlooked. Until today, it's brushed over or even denied. The extent of local collaboration and local initiative in Lithuania, it was one of the worst places which this occurred. Not the only place, it happened in other places as well, in other countries as well, and that's also a story. Local collaboration is a big and important story. And it seems that he was even in the same home 
same apartment complex home for a time uh, Rabbi Minsker in his last days with Rabbi Ram Grzynski in the Slobodka Mashgiach. Today it's a home that still exists. This old wooden home is still there. I bring the groups there. It's in Slabatka, suburb of Kavna. We still visit today. We see the home. Rav Grzynski's home. He was killed in a much later stage in the war at the end of the Kavna ghetto. But another apartment in that home belonged to Rav Aryeh Malkiel Friedman, the father of Rebetzin Rishel Cutler and others. Um, and Rav Chana Wasserman was actually staying in the Friedman home and he was taken to be killed at the 7th Fort in July 1941 at around the same time as Rabbeinu Minsker was killed, slightly, a few weeks after. And Rabbi Khanan, of course, was also killed by local Lithuanians. There's a great book, actually, uh, by Sylvia Foti um, from Chicago. Um, um, I forgot the name of the book, about how this whole discovery that she discovered to her grandfather as a Lithuanian murderer of Jews during the Holocaust, um, she goes on this whole journey. She thought her grandfather was a hero, and it turns out he was a big Lithuanian murderer of Jews in the Holocaust, and how she confronted that part of her past. I recommend that book also. It's a Harsh book, but also quite fascinating. So this is the story of Rabina Minsker and many other Altamirs um, who didn't make it, who didn't escape, who didn't make it to Shanghai. And um, and uh, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on your favorite podcast platform. And don't forget the OU program on Tishabov. Join and register. I'm going to post the link, and I hope you enjoyed.